Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, the the text for this morning's message is written on the back of the notes. We also do have Bibles at the back. You can ask an usher for one, and we can get you one that way as well. Luke chapter 12. And this morning, as you turn there, I want to ask you a question. How is it, the man or a woman, that we can be rich towards God? Of what do such riches, are they comprised? How does one go about obtaining riches in heaven? The reason I ask is that our text this morning is, is, is part two of a continued discussion Jesus has as he's interrupted. If you remember, he was preaching to his disciples in the presence of the multitude. There was thousands of thousands, so much so that people were being trampled. And yet Jesus begins speaking only to his disciples. This is a common method of Jesus. He's going to teach his disciples in the presence of the crowd so they can listen in. And as he's teaching, a voice from the crowd cries out, Teacher, tell my brother to sell, to give me my inheritance. Um, and then Jesus addresses the crowd. And he tells the story of the rich fool. And he ends in verse 21, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So that's where I get my starting question from. Jesus just showed a picture of a man who is rich on earth, wealthy on earth, and poor before God, and he is cast into hell and judgment. So as I hear that, the question on my mind is, I don't want to be the rich fool. Okay, how then do I get treasure in heaven? How do I get riches towards God? And that is where Jesus will end our text this morning. I'm going to read our text in just a moment. You'll see that that's where he gets us to, answering that critical question. And what we'll see is that as he answers that, it has a lot to do with our heart and our values and our fears and our longings. So let's read Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 34. <clears throat> and he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single span to his life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you so anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." This is a difficult and challenging text to work through. 
And yet, I think Jesus means this to be encouraging. I think there's two ways we can hear this passage. There's two ways we can listen to what Jesus is saying. One, fearfully, okay, what more is Jesus going to take from me? What more is Jesus going to require of me? Or we can see it as liberating. And even though it ends with some difficult commands, notice the care of our Lord in this passage. He said to his disciples, God, he's pointing to the lilies and to the ravens. Do not be afraid, little flock. He's being gentle. He's being pastoral. He, he means us, if we understand this correctly, to be encouraged. So let's dive in. And Jesus moves us along, getting us to how to acquire treasure in heaven through three points, three exhortations. The first, be not anxious for the things of this world. Be not anxious for the things of this world. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, the body more than clothing. Now here, Jesus, and I want you to track his argument, because he, he, he gives reasons, he gives examples, he gives principles. If you understand what he's saying, you've got to take apart what he's saying and put it back together and understand the argument. So he gives the command, don't be anxious. What are the things we're not to be anxious about? Our life, our, our food, our drink, our clothing. These, these are basic essentials. Don't be anxious about these things. Then he gives us a reason. And the reason that he gives is that your life is more than food or clothing. This is pretty much the same thing he gave earlier when he warned them back in verse 15. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So it's the same principle. He's repeating the same principle. That's part of how this message and last week's message tie together. This is more explanation, more unpacking. Now last week, he primarily gave the example of the rich fool to demonstrate that your life, because you go on past this life, can't simply be measured in scope of material possessions. The rich man, for this life only, was rich and in view of eternity was poor. And Jesus reminds them again of this, again, suggesting to us that we need to be reminded that we are tempted to forget. We are tempted to keep our head down, forget about eternity, and live like practical atheists. Do not be anxious for the things of this world. Why? Your life, my life, is more than simply eating, drinking, and clothing. Then he gives two illustrations. The first illustration, God feeds the ravens faithfully. God feeds the ravens faithfully. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. You've never seen a, a, a raven out there you know, planting seeds. The raven is completely and totally dependent on the produce, the tree, the bushes, the crop. He doesn't save up. I mean, squirrels do save up, right? Raven, no saving up. Every day the raven's getting its food, every day. And Jesus points to God's faithfulness and every day meeting the needs of ravens. There's the illustration, God feeds the ravens faithfully, and then that brings us to the principle. He says this, God feeds them of how much more value are you than birds. God, get this, God cares for you more than birds. It's the argument from the lesser to the greater. If we can see God's faithfulness on this small scale, if we can see and trust and, and get a vision of God's faithfulness, 
to birds. Ravens, which are unclean birds at that, how much more will He be faithful and care for us? He gives a second principle for why we shouldn't be anxious. The first reason, trusting in God's faithfulness and care for us. The second is that anxiety accomplishes nothing. Anxiety accomplishes nothing. He does this through a sort of rhetorical question. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single span to his life? If then you're not able to do this small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? And that's, and that's really the, the key, is that anxiety is one of the most useless, if not the most useless thing you can do. What does anxiety do other than take away your energy, your joy, your peace, your happiness? What does it do to prevent the things you're worried about from happening? Absolutely nothing. Being anxious is pointless. It accomplishes nothing. It only hurts yourself. And Jesus illustrates that. No good thing comes through anxiety. No good fruit is the product of anxiety. And we recognize that it's folly. When we find ourselves being anxious, move on. Find something else to think about. Read a psalm. Sing a song. Go into fellowship with other people. If you catch yourself sitting in anxiety, you're only hurting yourself. You are accomplishing nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Anxiety accomplishes nothing. Moreover, anxiety is borrowing trouble for tomorrow. In a parallel passage in Matthew 6.34, Jesus says this, Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And you've, you've heard me say this before, that when we're being anxious about tomorrow or next week or next year, we're taking upon ourselves the imaginary burden of tomorrow and next week's trials and then trying to bear those imaginary burdens with today's grace. But God hasn't given us next week's grace today. He'll give us next week's grace next week. He's given us today's grace today. And so I wouldn't expect today's grace to be sufficient for me to carry and bear up underneath next week's imagined trial. In fact, Lamentations 3, to 23 reminds us, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. So every morning, new grace, new mercies. God is promising to give you the grace you need to get through today. So anxiety is, is useless, and it's borrowing trouble, and it's flat out disobedient to what Jesus says. Notice the repetition. It's as if he's assuming that what's going to stop us from ultimately being generous, this is where this is going, is fear uncertainty, anxiety, this repetition. This is why it's so pastoral. This is why it's so tender. Fear, don't be afraid. you got to believe that God cares for you more than ravens, that God will be faithful, as, at least as faithful to you as he is to ravens, if not more so. And your anxiety accomplishes nothing. Then he moves on to the second illustration. The uh, God clothes the lilies in majesty, God clothes the lilies in majesty. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? with the illustration of the lilies, which is built upon two principles. Here's the first. He, he contrasts, and again, this very Jewish way of approaching things, the lesser to the greater, how short-lived 
the grass and the lilies are. It, 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 it wilts in a day. I mean, if you've gardened, you know, you can see how quickly plants, flowers die. What's the implication? We don't. We have greater durability. We, we last longer than flowers. In fact, Jesus has already taught us in Luke 9.25, we are immortal. We will never not be. I mean, just stop and think about that. You and I will never not be. The real issue is where will we be 10 billion years from now, 100 trillion years from now? And God clothes the grass with such a beauty that even the most regal king decked out in gold and jewelry on his regal throne pales in comparison to the beauty of flowers that I can see through that window. That's the care God has. And again, the argument, similar to the ravens, is if God is that attentive, I mean, God could have made a world where things just did what they did, but they weren't beautiful. I mean, think of the artistry and the overflowing love and goodness of God that he made flowers and he made them colorful, that he made color at all. I mean, the world, I'm pretty sure, could function just as it does if everything was black and white. And we wouldn't even be aware of the color spectrum. We could have made our eyes not take that in. But God is, is demonstrating his glory and the creation just keeps yelling, there's a good God. There's a wonderful God. There's a creative, artistic God. And God gives such care to grass and flowers that'll be dead tomorrow. Which brings us to the second principle, which is echoing the point from the ravens. God cares for you more than he cares for grass. But notice the rebuke that comes in here. If God so clothes the grass, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? God cares for you more than grass. And God, the argument again from the lesser to the greater. If this is the, the constant attention and goodness of God in flowers, dare we not think that he will give us the things we need? Do you really think God cares more for grass than he does for you? And yet again, oh, you of little faith. The, the emphasis here is that we may get this. You might be able to take a test. You know, if we did a test after this morning's message, does God care? what does God care more for? Image bearers, his people, or grass? And you, you'd collect the correct answer. And what does God care more for, his people or ravens? And you get the right answer. But when Jesus repeats himself, when the Bible repeats itself, the suggestion to me is we really do have a hard time believing this. And the question comes down when there is uncertainty in our economic future. And you might have to find a new job when you do need to find a new job. Do you believe this? It's a lack of faith that creates the anxiety. Notice the link there. Fear not, O you of little faith. Little faith doesn't believe these promises, so little faith fears. I want you to hear a, a marvelous passage. The Bible has so many passages that speak of God's tender love and compassion to us. God has shown us in so many ways His care for us, His love for us. This is one of my favorites in Isaiah 49. <clears throat> Verse 14 and following. But Zion has said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. So here's Israel thinking, God has forsaken. God has forgotten. Here's God's response. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? 
Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid waste go out to you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They are all gathered to come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them on as an adornment. You shall bind them on as a bride does. You think of a a new mother, and the Lord over the last few years has, has blessed our body with many new mothers. And you think of how easy it would be, or how hard it would be, for a new mother to forget, ignore her nursing child. Well, that's right, I forgot I had a baby. Just imagine how how far that would be for for a new mother to just completely forget, blank her mind, that she has a child, completely dependent on her. God says that that even might happen. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you in the palms of my hands. The risen Lord now, even now, has marks from the cross pointing to his love for us. God again and again in this word declaring, I love you. I'm not going to forsake you. I care for you. He cares for the ravens. He cares for the grass. And yet Jesus repeats, and it indicates to us what what the root of unbelief and anxiety and fear is. In those moments where we feel uncertain, or those moments where we're tempted to cling to our riches because our riches promise to preserve us, there's that little whisper. Maybe I need to look out for myself. Maybe God won't take care of me. So we get insight into the theology of fear, anxiety, and unbelief. So that's the first series of exhortations. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Your father loves you. He cares for you. He takes care of the grass. He'll take care of you. He feeds ravens. He'll feed you. Your worried anxiety does nothing. Let's move now to the second set of exhortations that Jesus gives. Do not seek after the things of this world. Do not seek after the things of this world. Verses 29-31. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So, so the first step in moving towards being rich with God, moving towards getting treasure in heaven is to recognize anxiety and fear as the enemy and anxiety and fear over money and finances as rooting in unbelief. Rooting in unbelief. Jesus, the little, little faith. And, and if that's where you are, if you're anxious about finances, spend some time meditating on God's goodness. Take, take a look at the grass. The grass can preach a sermon to you. When you see flowers, the flowers are preaching to you. You can trust God. He cares for you. He's good. So, so we've got to recognize anxiety as an evidence of unbelief, small faith. Anxiety is, as I must not be trusting in God's goodness right now because I'm anxious about my finances. Then he goes a step further. Don't seek after the things of this world. And this is emphatic in the Greek. You yourself do not seek what you yourself do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And he gives a reason and a principle and another command and then a promise. That's why he's going to move through this. The first reason is this. A disciple must not be like the world. 
A disciple must not be like the world. That's, that's the formulation of the argument. Don't do this. Why? This is what the nations do. Implication, you don't want to be like the nations of the world, do you? It's the same reason he gave back in the Sermon on the Plain when he argued to them that if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. The clear implication is disciples of Christ will not be like other people. The fundamental notion behind the, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament word group for holy and the New Testament word group is set apart, different. God is so holy, you can't image him. Why? There's nothing you can really compare him to. And so Jesus' disciples will be set apart, which means they should not look and smell and act like the world. This is where I think things start to get challenging. I want to read a quote from a commentator, Hendrickson. What Jesus is stressing here is that God's children must not behave like the nations of the world. They must be distinctive in their thinking, speaking, acting. It would be difficult to exaggerate the significance of the passage before us. What Jesus is saying is that believers must differ in their inner yearnings, must set their hearts on different things, must be controlled by different ideals, and must be motivated by a different love. When church members hardly differ at all from outsiders in their ambitions and what they cherish, in their goals that they try to achieve, in the manner in which they react to disappointments and adversities in life, there is something very wrong. To be real, religion must be vital. It's easy to recite the Apostles' Creed, and in doing so to say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth but to realize in one's heart that this heavenly Father actually knows what we need for food and drink and that he will take care of us, make sure that we have it, to be convinced of this even though we may be unemployed, that is another matter. That is exactly what Jesus teaches here. And so I'm going to pause, and this is convicting, because I think the, the prosperity we have in the West has, has sort of generated this notion that you can have both. You can have a good, comfortable, middle-class life, and you can be a good, godly Christian. I'm not saying you can't, but this promise that you can, and you should expect to be able to, flies against so much of what the New Testament says. You see, in America, and I, this, I'll quote Philip Jensen here. He's an Australian Anglican, the good type. And he was speaking at Mark Dever's church, and he was saying that the American prosperity dream goes something like this. You, you work hard, you get into a good school, so you can pursue a degree that works with your, some, some intersects with things you're interested in and what will help you make the most money, so that you can have the most comfortable lifestyle, living in the largest house you can comfortably and reasonably live in, driving the best car you can reasonably drive, with a good school down the street. That's the American sort of dream. Now, you don't want to be rich, but the goal is I want to maximize if I could make more money, I want to do that. If I could live in a bigger house, I want to do that. If I could drive a nicer car, I want to do that. And what he said was the, the American Christian version of that looks identical to it. It just adds one more detail in, with a good church down the block as well. And he said what we ought to be doing is starting from a radically different point, realizing that God has made us, gifted us for ministry. We should be starting to ask, what area of gospel ministry does God want me to give my life to? What income 
do I need to enable me and free me for this gospel ministry? What home can I afford that will, that will allow me to engage in the ministry the Lord's given me to do? It's a very different organization principle. And that may sound crazy, but that's the exact notion of his argument here. How, how many choices would we have made differently about school, vocation, if we were atheists? Any? Because Jesus is saying we must not be like what the nations are doing. We want to measure if we're doing this faithfully. Look at your life. Look at the choices you've made in pursuit of not riches, just basic things. Don't seek what you're to eat or what you're to drink. This isn't condemning pursuing yachts. This is saying even at the level of food and drink, the organizational principle of our life must be different than that of the nations. Must be different than that of the nations. So the the reason why we're not to seek after these things, we must not be like the world. And he gives us a principle. Because that's scary, right? That's that's challenging. The principle is this. He's already emphasized that God cares for you. Here he emphasizes God's knowledge. Your Father knows what you need. Do not seek what you're to eat and drink. Nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. See, what Jesus is not saying is, don't worry about food, you don't need food. Don't worry about drink, you don't need drink. The Father knows you need them. The argument is, because the Father knows you need them, and because the Father cares for you, don't worry about them. Don't build your life around the pursuit of those things. He's going to give us another principle to build and shape our life around. Our Father cares for us, and our Father knows what we need. So here's the command then. We give it negatively, don't seek. Here we get the do seek. But seek instead his kingdom. These things will be added to you. And the Greek seek is present active. It's be seeking. This isn't something you can say, well, I've done that. Check. Be seeking. Be seeking. Don't be seeking the things of the world. Be seeking the kingdom of God. Devote your life to pursuing God's kingdom. Uh, We've covered this before. God's kingdom is God's rule both over you and God's rule and his sovereignty over the creation as we preach the gospel, as we share with others the words of Christ. God's kingdom moves as you and I become more set apart, more holy, more like Jesus. God's kingdom in our life advances. We're to seek those things. That's the organizing principle of our life is meant to be. God's rule over me, the extension of, God's gracious rule over his creation through the gospel. Devote your life to pursuing God's kingdom. And I said before, God's made you for ministry. Don't just think of ministry as vocational, professional ministry. Are you married? You've got ministry. Do you have children? You definitely got ministry. Do you have neighbors? You have ministry. You have coworkers. You have ministry. Part of a church? You have ministry. Unless you're in a um, monastery, you got ministry. Unless you've tried to take yourself out of this world. So not everyone's called to doing the ministry I'm doing here on Sunday morning. But make no mistake, Paul is emphatic in 1 Corinthians. You've been gifted. If you're in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, God has equipped you with spiritual gifts for the good of the body, for the good of the world. That is the priority. And so if these are new thoughts to you, may may I suggest that perhaps it would be good over lunch throughout this week to be thinking, 
what, what ministry does God want me doing? What, what are my gifts? And very quickly, when I talk to people about these things, you'll find out that other things in their life get, will get in the way. I mean, just think about the, in the scales of things. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong in preparing for, training for vocation. And that's good. But think about the amount of time, money, work, late nights, papers you have to write, we spend in preparing for vocation so that we can make sure that we can provide for ourselves what we're to eat, what we're to drink, what we're to be clothed with. Think about the years, going through school, going through college, or if you were, you're going through an apprenticeship or rising the ladder in the company or whatever have you. How many man hours? How much work? Okay. How much time, man hours, work, preparation, study, you put into ministry that God's called you to. Because Jesus is saying, this is the one that we should be organizing our life around. So often I'll hear people moving from one town to another, one place to another, because they got a better job offer. I'm not saying that's wrong. Far too seldom do I hear people, we're moving over here, why? There's this great ministry opportunity we want to get involved in. There's this wonderful church that we've grown to love and we're moving over there to be part of it. I know a few people that have made decisions like that. And most of the people they know in the church think that's crazy. And here Jesus is saying, no, you can trust God. You can trust God to care for you. You can trust God to know what you need. So that is meant to free you, to pour yourself into his call on your life, which I'm certain for many of us will involve working. This isn't to say quit your jobs and go do ministry, but view your jobs as ministry. View your life as ministry. And trust that God will supply what you need. And hear the implied promise from the ravens, from the lilies, is made concrete. So you ask the rhetorical question, how much more will he care for you? And how much more will he clothe you? Here he just says it flat out. These things will be added to you. That's a promise that Jesus has given. That if we are devoting ourselves to God's will in our life, God's kingdom developing in our life, that he is promising that those basic needs that we have will be met. I have yet to meet the person who has made God a liar on this point. And notice he's not promising the yacht. He's not promising the second home. He's, he's setting the bar. Paul sets the bar. Food, clothing, daily needs. But he is promising those things. And I know this can be scary to us, but it's meant to be liberating. There, there's nothing to be afraid of. You don't need to guard and protect yourself. Your father knows. Your father cares. Your father loves you. Seek his kingdom. You're freed up to do that. The promise, this wonderful promise, your father will provide your needs. This brings us finally then to probably the strongest command where we finally get the answer to our question about storing up treasure in heaven. Do not store up the things of this world. Do not store up the things of this world. Fear not, he says, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide for yourself money bags that do not grow old with treasure that is in heaven that will not fail where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He starts us off with another command. It's don't be afraid. You notice the stacking up of these things. What does Jesus assume this teaching is going to create within us? And I'm sure for many of us sitting here, we're getting nervous. Anxiety, fear, these are the terms he's using. And he, notice the tenderness, little flock. 
Notice also the contrast between who he's addressing here. He is speaking now to his disciples, not the crowds. The crowds are so great, people are getting trampled. The people Jesus thinks are really his disciples, the people he thinks will really hear this, is a very little flock. There are many people seeking after Jesus today. Very few people are willing to hear, believe, trust the things he's saying. Do not be afraid. The author of Hebrews makes this point emphatically as well, and I want you to get the link between fear and unbelief. Hebrews 13.5, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For, why? Why, why can I do that? He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How does that logic work? The assumption is underlying my fear, my love, my discontent with what I have, is a lack of trust that God will be with me through the rest of my life, that I may have to look out for myself. It's back to the garden. Can I trust God or not? Or do I need to take care of myself? He gives us then another great promise. I want you to see all the good things, the carrot that Jesus is putting out in front of us. It's not stick. It's all carrot. Your father loves you. Your father cares for you. Your father's going to take care of you. He's going to give you the things you need. Your father's going to give you the kingdom. You, know, you, may, you may be missing up opportunities for advancement and wealth in this life, but you'll be the richest of peoples in the kingdom. He will give you the kingdom. We're going to inherit the kingdom. It's a staggering, staggering promise. Which brings us an application. Application. So I want you to see all the things Jesus has brought out to free us up here at this point. He's, he's told us not to be anxious. Why? God cares for you. He cares for you more than ravens. He cares for you more than grass. Trust that your Father knows what you need. That should free you then to devote yourself to pursuing God's kingdom with the promise that as you do so, he will give you the things you need day by day. And remember, Jesus taught his disciples not give us next year's food, just give us today our daily bread, right? So the promise isn't that I'm going to give you 10 years of security now. You'll have what you need today. Here's the application. This gets concrete. Up to this point, it's pie in the sky. And here comes the hardest commands, right? Sell your possessions and give to the needy. It's unqualified. Remember also who Jesus is speaking to who are part of his disciples. There may be some wealthy people here. I'm not familiar with many of Jesus' disciples who are wealthy. We know that Peter was a fisherman. He had his own boat. These are common folk for the most part. He's not speaking to a bunch of lords and ladies. Speaking to his disciples and to them, peasants. He tells them, sell their possessions, give to the poor. How much more... People who live in this world, in this country. Sell your possessions and give. Sell your goods and give. Turn, turn quickly to 2 Corinthians 8. I want you to see a picture of what this looks like. Second Corinthians chapter 8. This could be the first five verses. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So Paul's reporting to the Corinthians about a grace of God. What we're about to read is a grace of God. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy 
and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This is important to get. Jesus has been encouraging us because the only way we're going to be freed up to give, to be loose with our pocketbooks, is not through a guilt trip, but through trusting and believing in God's precious promises. They do it in their joy. As their joy overflows, so does their giving. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. And of their own accord, and no one was pressing them, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. So they're seeking his kingdom first. Lord, we're yours. Do with us what you want and then by the will of God to us. This, this is where we can get scared. But Jesus and Paul are emphatic. He's not trying to beat us with a stick. He's not trying to make us feel guilty. He's trying to free us up. Because here at last, we find out how to get treasure. Here at last, we find out how to be rich towards God, how to avoid the fate of the rich man. To sell your possessions, give to the needy, Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. That's how. You want to know how you can get rich in heaven? You want to be rich towards God? Give to people in need. Don't hoard up. Don't, don't build the silo and store up this world's possessions. Give. Now, I know the first question is going to come out, okay, how much? And if you ask the question how much, I think you're getting this the wrong way. I want to read a quote from C.S. Lewis. How much? And he talks about two different ways of approaching God. One, he says, is is knowing that there are things we have to give, but we, we hope all the time that when all his demands have been met, the poor natural self will still have some chance, some time to get on his own life and do what he likes. In fact, we are very much like an honest man paying his taxes. He pays them all right, but he does hope that after... There will be enough left over for him to live on. Because we're still taking our natural self as a starting point. I mean, is that the way you approach God? Okay, great, Pastor Jeremy, show me one more thing I got to do for God. I hope there's going to be enough left over for me afterwards. You're, you're not getting it. As long as we're thinking that way, writes Lewis, one of the other, one of one or the other of two results will likely follow. Either we give up trying to be good, or else we become very unhappy indeed. For make no mistake. If we are really going to try and meet all the demands made on the natural self, we will not have enough left over to live on. The Christian life is different, harder, and easier. Christ says, give all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment the natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here or there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones which are wicked, the whole outfit. And I will give you a new self instead, says Christ. In fact, I will give you myself. My own shall become yours. The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole life, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But that is far easier than what so many of us try to do instead. For what we are trying to do is remain what we call ourselves to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life and yet at the same time to be good and obedient 
We're all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money and pleasure and ambition and hope, in spite of this, to behave honestly and decently. And this is what Christ warns us we cannot do. He has said, a thistle tree cannot bear figs. We must go in for the full treatment. And this is a long quote. It's my last paragraph. It is hard, but the sort of compromise we are hankering for is far harder. In fact, it is impossible. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird, but it would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn how to fly while remaining an egg. We are eggs at present, and we cannot go on indifferently in that state. We must be hatched or go bad. We can't approach God as though we're giving him some things and hoping there's enough left over. He's Lord of all. And he says, let me organize your life around my values. Let me organize your bank account around my values. It's all mine. It's not you give to the Lord his share, then you get to keep the rest. It's all his, acting like that. And this is how we provide treasure in heaven. Let me use another analogy here. Uh, again, trying to demonstrate how the question, okay, how much? Because Jesus doesn't say, sell all your possessions, right? And you can already see the escape hatch, right? So I just got to go on eBay, sell one thing, and then I can check this one off the list. Yes, I've sold. If, you, if you're asking that question, you're asking the wrong question. Imagine we were all playing, we couldn't really all play a game of Monopoly, but imagine myself and a few others are playing a game of Monopoly. And halfway through the game of Monopoly, I pause and say, I want to I let you in on something. I'm, I'm going to offer you for every Monopoly dollar you give me, I'm going to give you $100 in gold. Not even cash, gold. For every Monopoly dollar you give me, I'm going to give you $100 worth of gold weighed out. Now just imagine the person who really believes me saying, so how much Monopoly money do I have to give you then? You'd be taking every single piece of Monopoly money you had and cashing it in. If you could get in a time machine and go back to the days when you could buy you know, IBM or Apple stock the second it hit the market, you would leverage everything you had to invest in that. Jesus is saying you can, you can get eternal treasure that 8 trillion years from now will still be there simply by being generous with and not holding on to and not worrying about the things of this world. If, if you really get what he's saying, you will not be asking, okay, how much do I have to give? You'll be asking what the... Macedonians, Paul, let us give more. That's, that's the thing. So if, if you're getting fear, go, go, don't, don't just skip over this. We have to do this for the right reason. We have to do this because we really do trust God. We have to do this because we really do want treasure in heaven. Not out of guilt. God loves a cheerful giver, not under compulsion. But these two angles, this is how we get treasure in heaven, and these are the promises of God that we can rely upon are meant to free us. Which brings us then to the final warning of the text, the final warning of the text. Here really is the only place Jesus has any sort of stick in the equation. After all the promises he's given us that free us up from fear, this radical promise that we can take the, 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 the things of this world that are transient, that are temporary, that are shadows, and with them we can secure eternal and uncorruptible rewards. With all that on the table, he says this, for where your heart is, there your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, we've got no excuses for not being generous other than, I don't really want treasure in heaven, or I don't really believe God's promises. And so, 
what you do with your money and possessions reveals your true treasure and your true God. In light of the promises that Jesus has made, what you do with your money and possessions reveals your true treasure and your true God. Turn over to Luke 16 really quickly. We won't go to 1 Timothy. Luke 16 is the parable of the dishonest manager. He knows he's about to get fired, so he calls in the people who owe his master money, and he writes off their debts. But look what Jesus says in verse 9. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they can receive you into eternal dwellings. Same principle again. Use your money now for future reward. Then he gives this warning. This is the danger, right? The danger is we can do both. Jesus says very clearly in verse 13, no servant, no slave can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or to put it in the vernacular of our text, you cannot seek God and money. Now, seeking God may involve you being a very faithful and hard worker in your place of employment. Don't misunderstand me. But only one of these two things, God and his kingdom, or the things of this world, only one of these two things can be your God. Only one of these two things can be the organizing principle of your life. You can't do both. I'll serve God and money. Jesus says, no, you can't. You start to get why even with hundreds of thousands of people, it's a very small flock he's speaking to here. Here's our answer. Be generous. Trust in God's promises. Don't do it fearfully. Don't do it begrudgingly. And if you're not doing this much at all, I wouldn't say jump in the deep end and go sell everything. Just start a bit more and see if God can be trusted. Is there a blessing in giving? Is it more blessed to give than to receive, as Jesus himself said? And start to move in that direction. Start to take the scales that are out of balance and start to put them back in balance slowly. Trusting God, seeing God, doing it in joy and in faith. Asking God to increase our faith so that we can trust his promises so that we won't make all of our economic and financial decisions just like the world. Because I don't want to end up like that rich man, and I don't think you do either. Our Father cares for us. Our Father loves us. Our Father promises to provide for us. He's going to give us the kingdom. Let us live and act as people who believe that. Let's pray. Lord God, we... We recognize our faith is weak. We are of little faith. And we recognize how prompted and tempted we are to doubt your promises, to be very much afraid, be very anxious, how hardwired we are to seek the things of this world and not your righteousness. And so, Lord God, we just pray that you would give us faith, open our eyes to see, give us confidence in who you are, your care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.